BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome to season two of the Modern Adventurer podcast. I'm your host, John Horsfall. I'm an adventurer and photographer, and each week I'll be talking with a new guest about their latest adventure from around the world. For all the new listeners and subscribers who have joined, I speak to adventurers and explorers who do remarkable things in the field of exploration and endurance. This is an immersive podcast, so this season their story is cut to music and cinematic effects as we immerse ourselves into the heart of their adventure. My next guest is an adventurer who is going out recreating adventures of past female explorers. Last year, we had her on the podcast talking about her incredible trip out in the Himalayas recreating Alexandra David Neal's expedition. But this time, we are heading to Iran to recreate Freya Stark's The Valley of the Assassins. I am delighted to introduce Elise Wortley to the podcast. Thanks very much. Nice to see you again. Well, lovely to see you too. Well, it's great to have you back on. We uh, we spoke about a year ago about your epic stories from Scotland to the Himalayas. And then sneakily, you uh, went out to <laughs> Iran uh, to yeah. cover another incredible female adventurer, which uh, we'll probably jump into the story in a bit. But for people who don't know you, uh, I always like to start at the beginning, like, who are you? What do you do? And how did you get into this sort of life of adventures? Yeah, well, I always say I'm a bit of an accidental adventurer. Like, I didn't really set out to do this path. Um, But yeah, I basically read a book by a female explorer when I was 16. And the book really blew my mind because I didn't know that there were women doing this stuff back in like the early 1900s, late 1800s. I'd only ever been taught about the men. 
um, or we only really learn about male explorers at school. So I read this book by Alexandra David Neal, and she was this incredible woman. She was the first woman to meet Western woman to meet the Dalai Lama. She traveled for 14 years through Asia. She did this really difficult journey just to sort of learn more about Buddhism. And she learned Tibetan and um, meditated in a cave for two years. So her story just completely blew my mind. I was so amazed by her. Um, and then I always had it in the back of my mind that someday I would kind of follow in her footsteps, kind of just to sort of te- retell her story because everyone I spoke to had never heard of her. Um, and yeah, and then all these years later, I sort of ended up doing it. And I, I, my expeditions are a bit different to other people's because I actually use what the women had at the time. Um, and really, I just do this as another way to show how difficult their journeys were. And I would never understand like fully what they went through if I wasn't in the old equipment. So that's how it kind of all started. And yeah, I just did my third um, expedition because once I'd come back from that first one, I did a lot of research and I found hundreds of women from the past that did all these incredible things that were never really celebrated at the time. So yeah, so I'm just just kind of working my way through that list um, and kind of just shouting about these women that did these really cool things. So the story of this one is Freya Stark. For people who don't know too much about her, how did you sort of come across her and this story? Yeah, so the one, my trip I just did was following in the footsteps of Freya Stark to the valleys of the assassins in Iran. And actually Freya is a really interesting one because she was famous at her time compared to the other women, like her books were taken seriously, her expeditions were taken seriously. Um, she had a lot of like credit, you know, people, she was up there with the guys, but then actually over time, kind of nowadays, she seems to have been forgotten. Um, but this book, The Valleys of the Assassins, I always loved. It was one of the first ones I actually found when I started doing all this research into these women. And it's just incredible. She's really funny. I really like that she really spends a lot of time with the people that she meets. She just kind of fully immerses herself in their world. Like she actually stayed in this area in Iran for years on and off. She had friends there and that kind of gives her more of an insight when she's writing about the place. So I just always felt this kind of connection to her and yeah, I just always, I mean, the valleys of the assassins, it sounds cool, right? So I just <laughs> always wanted to go there. Um, and finally, after I'd been trying to organize this all over COVID and it just wasn't happening. So yeah, finally this year I, I went off and I, I managed to do it. So for people who are like looking into this, because getting the sort of sponsorship last time we spoke and sort of working your way up to this, what was the sort of planning that went into this one? Because as you've sort of done more, it's becoming more and more of a bigger feature in terms of filming, photography. Yeah, I mean, the filming adds a whole nother element to organisation. Um, as does the sponsorship. So yeah, the project, my project's kind of really grown over the last year. And um, yeah, it's just a case of finding companies that I really love and uh, kind of resonate with the project. And I know that they will bring something positive to the project. So um, I always take female guides with me from whichever country I visit, because they obviously have the knowledge and I really like to have an all-female team while I do these trips. So it just makes sense for this one to work with Intrepid Travel because they've been doing a lot of um, promotion with female guides around the world, especially in Iran. So 
I just wrote to them and they were like really excited about the project, really happy to sponsor it. And then I ended up going with um, one of their female guides, Nadia, who was absolutely amazing. So that kind of came quite naturally. Um, And then I think because this is quite, this is going to, this trip was, no one had really been to this area since before the seventies, no tourists anyway. So we decided to make a film because it's just, you know, people don't really know much about Iran, especially in the UK or this area of it, especially. So that's where the North Face kind of came in with that funding, because um, again, it's going to be an all female created film in the adventure space, which is quite rare. Um, So yeah, it just kind of worked out like that. But yeah, it adds a whole nother element of organisation because obviously if it's just you, it's just me going, it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot easier. It doesn't matter if things go wrong because it's just me. But then if I have sort of team of three extra people coming, it's just crazy. So actually the organisation for this one was, um, yeah, it nearly killed me to be honest. (laughs) It was a lot. Yeah. And so for people who are unfamiliar with the the sort of geography of Iran, whereabouts is this sort of um, Valley of the Assassins located? Yeah. So Iran's absolutely huge, something I learned. And it's actually got, it's bordered by so many countries. So actually all around, you know, each different city has different um, food, different custom, everything. So the whole place is like an entire world on its own. But actually where we went, we flew into Tehran, which is the capital kind of north eastern kind of um and then we only drove about three out three or four hours out into the desert um from there and then that's where the Alborz mountain range starts um so we started in a place called Krasbin which is also where Freya Stark started her journey um and then slowly as you walk up that you can literally see the hills coming out of the desert and they go from really dry sort of rocky beginning slopes to massive green kind of lush pastures and then up to sort of really big white kind of peaks so yeah really amazing landscape and quite accessible really from Tehran um but once you're in it it's very hard to get out unless you're kind of walking yeah it's it's a beautiful uh, mountain range uh i was there in 2018 up in a place called Dizan Mm. And as you say, some of the most spectacular mountains you will see. And as you say, it goes on for as far as the eye can see. So let's jump into the story. And, you know, you've flown out to Tehran. You're about to sort of start this journey. What were the sort of feelings like as you sort of land in Tehran? You've got your team ready to go. Yeah, I mean, I was saying this the other day, you know, before I went to Iran I get loads of you know people go oh is it all right there oh I don't think you should go in with camera equipment or especially not microphones so actually when the plane landed I was shitting myself (laughs) because we had all these microphones all these cameras like wads of cash because there's no cash machine like you can't use the banking systems there so you have to take everything with you um so yeah it was all a bit crazy and then obviously as a woman you have to put the headscarf on as soon as the plane lands so everything, I'd never been to a Middle Eastern country like that. So everything was crazy. We missed an entire night's sleep just because of the way that the planes work. So we literally got off in Tehran and it was just insane. But yeah, going through the airport, you know, I was terrified, but I couldn't have been more welcomed. You know, it was absolutely wonderful. They were like, oh, welcome. But, you know, there was absolutely no problem. So you're sitting there thinking, why is everyone telling me, you know, that this is, I'm going to get arrested for having microphones. <laughs> like, they just don't care. Um 
So yeah, and then we kind of got everything ready for the trip in Tehran. So ended up on no sleep going around all the markets, which was obviously a huge assault on the senses. Um, and yeah, just kind of started from there and got everything ready and then drove out to Kazvin, which is a much smaller kind of city. Um, so that was quite nice after that first night to get out of Tehran. And it's actually very polluted Tehran as well. It's really smoggy when we got there. So when you get out into this sort of more mountainous environment, you just realise how wonderfully clean and untouched it is. Um, so, yeah, that were the first couple of days. So, yeah, it was quite um, quite chaotic, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so driving out to the mountain range and starting, and there's a sort of group of four or three of you guys? Four of us, yeah. So there was um, me and then the female film crew, and then we had Nadia, who was our guide and translator. And then as we went through the valley, we had different guides kind of for each bit, each day, um, who knew the area as well. Um, so that's how the trip kind of worked. But interestingly, there aren't any maps of this area. I mean, there's Google Maps. Um, and I think there's a few maps of the mountains. But in terms of like walking trails and things, it's it's never been documented. So we really relied on the knowledge of those people who lived there to kind of show us the way. And even then, that they said no one had done this exact path since before the revolution. So they weren't sure. Um, so quite a lot of the time we were lost, but I guess that's kind of part of it. And so when you were lost, what were the sort of problems that you faced on a sort of day to day? I think more with the loss, it was just finding the local shepherds because um, there's these shepherds, they have a really kind of tough life. They just live in the mountains, just moving their sheep around. Um, and it's the shepherds paths that we followed. So when we got a bit lost, you know, everyone kind of has phones these days. I'm like, mm, this isn't very much like Freya. So the guides would be like phoning these random shepherds, like, which way, which way? Um, and the shepherds were also kind. So obviously everyone's kind of heard about Iranian hospitality and these shepherds kind of had nothing and they just have like a bit of bread and butter for lunch and they'd always want us to sit with them and share the food. And luckily we had loads of our own food, so we ended up just kind of sharing and then they kind of tell us the way and it was really wonderful actually kind of working in that way and being so off grid and just having to talk to people around us to kind of find the way for all the listeners um in terms of a sort of day-to-day you are walking with a donkey or are you just walking (laughs) solo with the four of you yeah, so it's us four and then we had a mule because Freya Stark actually, is, she writes about her mule all the time. Um, so we had one and it didn't have a name, so I named it obviously Freya. <laughs> um, um, and it was the most wonderful creature. So we didn't ride it or anything, we just kind of had a few bags on it. Um, so yeah, there was us, they, we, I guess us five were kind of the main team and then along the way, we had different guides who were women and men that we met along the way. And actually, by the end, some people had decided they wanted to stay. So our group was a lot bigger at the end than when it started. Um, and then we just stayed in houses um, as we went along the way, different houses, which is what Freya did as well. So that was amazing. So you say that Iran is sort of, you know, well known for its hospitality. Can you remember a moment along the trip where you're sort of welcomed or a sort of particular moment where it sort of shone for you? Yeah, I mean, every single night we stayed in a different home and the women of the home would have made this incredible meal. So every meal, so breakfast, lunch and dinner, all the families, they eat together. Even if someone goes off to work, they'll come back 
and have lunch or dinner with the family. And for me, that's amazing because I never really, we don't do that here. Um, and they were really surprised when they were like, oh, you don't have breakfast, lunch and dinner together as a family. I was like, no, sometimes I just have like a sandwich from the shop for lunch. They were like, oh, no, because <laughs> obviously they cook all this amazing fresh food all from the valley. But every single time we stopped, we were so welcomed and everyone was interested in what we were doing. Um, yeah, it was just wonderful. Like that's probably the highlight and everyone shared everything. Like I said, the shepherds that we met shared all their food and yeah, it was just really wonderful. And houses that we walked past in the day, we'd be invited in and we'd have tea and everyone would be so welcoming and so lovely. So yeah, that's probably the most memorable thing. And the sort of terrain that you were going over, you sort of say that those mountains go from the desert to sort of rocky to snow caps. What was the sort of um, views that you were seeing on a day to day? Yeah, it is amazing how you literally see the mountains growing out of the ground. Um, so when we were actually in the valley, it's obviously quite low down. It was quite tricky to get in. So there's a couple of really tough days where you have to go up and over the pass and down into the valley. But when you're actually in the valley, which is the Valley of the Assassins, it's just full of rice paddies. It's kind of, for the name, it's actually a really gentle, wonderful, slow-paced kind of place. Um, you just kind of walk through the rice paddies following the river and then on either side, it's kind of soaring big mountains up both sides, um, which is really incredible. And then obviously the days where we were climbing in and out of the valley, um, those views were absolutely insane, just sort of white peaks everywhere. Um, and then it's kind of the Caspian Seas on the other side of the valley. So when you come out the other end, the landscape's completely different. It's almost like they call it jungle, but it's more like really lush green trees, different wildlife. Um, so it's really lovely to come out and then down into that. So yeah, it was absolutely stunning. And like I say, they, they didn't get many tourists there. So it's completely untouched. I don't think I've been anywhere that untouched in my life before. There was no litter. There was not really any people. There was just nothing. It was absolutely amazing. Was there a moment where it sort of nearly all fell apart? I mean, yeah. Well, I had this old Burberry coat. I don't know if you've heard about this Burberry coat, but... Freya Stark writes about it a lot in her book. I think the guides that she has at the time really like this coat, so they end up taking it quite a bit and wearing it. So I was like, I have to get my hands on one. And actually, a 1930s Burberry jacket is near impossible to find. Like, anything after 50s and 60s, it's just not around. And after, like, months, I managed to find this, um, this coat from this place in, like, Sheffield. This really lovely guy has, like, a collection of vintage stuff and managed to find this coat but obviously no one had worn it actually out for a really really long time because it had been in an archive um so I didn't know if it was waterproof or anything like that so yeah sometimes it would rain like as we got a bit higher up and we were between the kind of cold and the um but it actually held up all right I think this time it was the boots that were the real challenge um they just completely fell apart so half the time I was just walking with one boot on and one boot off on these really slippery kind of mountain slopes um, so yeah, the boot fell apart, if if anything. Because yeah. <laughs> I imagine you did probably, like Freya Stark, didn't take spares. No, I just had those. And actually they were the hot topic of conversation. So every night when we arrived at place, everyone would be looking like, oh dear, 
oh, what, what are you doing wearing that? You know, everyone was so concerned and I'd have to kind of explain, oh no, I can't accept those shoes. Like that's really kind that you're offering me those shoes, but I can't accept it. And then, but what I didn't know was actually one of the guides had bought, like called for some super glue. So someone came from somewhere quite far away with this super glue. And I woke up one morning and they were all sort of gathered around the shoe and they glued it back together and they were so happy. And I was like, that's amazing. Thank you so much. And then it actually managed to hold out for the rest of the trip. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what happened with the boot. But yeah, it was the talking point of the trip, the boot. Yeah, I bet. And so as you've, how long was this journey? And towards the end, as you say, you're getting towards the end of this trip, sort of moving towards the Caspian Sea. What was the sort of um, feelings like as you're getting towards there? Do you know, I the whole time I was there, I was just thinking, how did Freya do this without a map? Because you actually feel quite trapped when you're in, when you're trying to get out and over. Unless you know the way, you would never have found that path out. Um, and she obviously went there. She was mapping the area for the Royal Geographical Society as well as, um, so it's called the Valley of the Assassins because there was this really old ancient sect um, called the Assassins that lived there like a thousand AD. Um, but they're known through history because they were so kind of ruthless and they managed to keep this stronghold for so long. Um, I think they eventually got defeated by the Mongols, but after a really long time. So like Assassin's Creed, the video game, it's like based on these people, like their legend has kind of lasted time. So that's why Freya went as well to kind of find their castles. Um, so yeah, so she was mapping the area. So I just kept thinking... Like, how would you even know? You'd feel so trapped here, like coming out the other side because the mountains are so big and the path actually we took, it was over a, a pass, the Salamba pass out the other end. Um, you'd have never really found that on your own. So I don't know how she did it. Um, but yeah, as we kind of came out and over that, obviously that was really steep, really tough day, but you, you come down the other side and it's kind of, it's not as hot. It's, yeah, really kind of tropical, um, everything's lush and green and it just feels quite calming and soothing. Um, so yeah, it really changed that day. Um, but on the high passes, it was kind of quite barren, um, but incredible views kind of over the white peaks of that range. Yeah, really amazing. Was the finishing line sort of towards the Caspian Sea in terms of mountains to sea, peak to sea, that sort of yeah, so we got- idea? Yeah, so we kind of went about halfway down into the jungle. Um, There's a little town called Huge, um, and there's a picture at the end of Freya's. So we did the whole of the chapter, the Valley of the Assassins, so that's where she finishes. And she's got a picture of it there, so we actually wanted to try and find this spot where she'd taken a picture. And we managed to find it, but amazingly, a lot of the other villages... They people used to live in the mud homes and then in the valley they've realised like 50 years ago that cherry trees go re- grow really really well there so lots of people have made a bit of money from the cherry trees so they've upgraded their houses to sort of m- more modern um, materials so a lot of her pictures of the mud houses weren't there but in this place in Huge it actually looked pretty much the same as the picture so it was really amazing to kind of come to that at the end um, and then they said that that side, because a lot of the um, the young people from the villages kind of go off to the cities for for work and they leave the villages, that actually a lot of them have got a lot smaller since Freya was there. So they're almost like the villages are kind of disappearing, which was really sad. So it's quite interesting looking at this picture and then 
of seeing what it was like now has really changed um, in some ways. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of kind of the end of it. Um, yeah, and we stayed at this amazing home kind of home there with this woman called Nessa who was kind of really trying to, uh, she was doing an amazing job at creating like homestays that use everything from nature and all around um, just to support the families that live there. Um, and it was absolutely amazing. She made us this fresh bread and everything in her house was freshly made, like the butter, the cheese. Um, yeah, it was quite an incredible place. And so finishing it off with the team, how were they sort of feeling towards the end as well when you you'd sort of completed it? Uh, was there a feeling of sadness that you finished or was it a sort of bit more relief? <laughs> both I think I think these things because actually I knew one of the team but like our director I'd never met before and obviously Nadia I'd never met or any of the guys but whenever you do this kind of thing you do create this really special bond um you probably know this you kind of end up being like best mates for the time you're there so it is really sad at the end and it was a really challenging trip in terms of walking like we were walking and walking um no one had a map so one of the guides would say oh this will take two hours you know like six hours later we'd still be on this one bit and I'd be like but we need to get there we're so far away so the whole thing was quite challenging um so I think everyone was kind of relieved at the end um I was because I hadn't really slept so I'd gone completely nuts um but yeah it's, it's kind of bittersweet I guess at the end of these things yeah absolutely I mean it's a sort of incredible story and how long were you in Iran before you flew back? Oh, literally, like, we came back the next day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. We actually went back to Tehran the night after we'd stayed at that wonderful homestay. And I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. Because it was so smoggy that, like, people would go into the malls to get the fresh air. And just malls are really not my kind of thing. Um, and for the film, they also, they, they kept me in the old equipment. I didn't get my phone back till we landed in the UK. So I was just walking around Tehran, like not a happy bunny, still in my boot that was sort of flopping apart. Um, so yeah, it was quite a weird last night in Tehran and I was quite glad to get on the plane. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there's sort of something to be said. I remember like where we used to camp up in the mountains there and they are truly spectacular. But it's going from that sort of moment of complete and utter peacefulness in the mountains to the hustle and bustle of those markets is just quite the contrast yeah and especially in Tehran and we had little cameras that we were using and we were it wasn't the most subtle I have to say and everyone was looking which is fine because that's just what happens but I think yeah I just I just wanted to hide in a hole at that point um but yeah it it was such a contrast to the mountains it was insane yeah and those homestays they they're amazing I always think because it's sort of very hard, I imagine, for people listening to sort of contemplate just how sort of homely they make those homestays and how like welcoming they are to strangers. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Of, I'm trying to think of the name. They have this uh, thing <laughs> in Iran. Yeah, it's called like uh, Hoof Hufel. So I, I completely butchered that one. But it's basically. <laughs> It's basically this idea of if you're kind to strangers, God will look kindly on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and, but they always like, if you offer something, they always say, no, 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 no. Um, 
Well, you but have to do I've, it about ten times. Yeah. Like, can I help with the washing up? No, no, no. Can I help? Can I help? Is then in the end you just you just start and they're like, oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and the amazing thing about our homestays was actually they weren't even homestays; they were literally just homes because it's not on a tourist trail. So actually, Nadia and the team had sort of organised before with the local families um, which ones we were going to stay with. So we got a really sort of like rare experience of not even being with people that were used to hosting tourists. So we got a really sort of in-depth view of what life is like there, um, which is really special. And I don't think I'll ever have that again in that way. So I'm so grateful for that. And that was, yeah, really, really special. Um, and just the way they all eat together um, and everything is shared and I'm actually veggie, but I had, to, I had to eat a bit of lamb, which is <laughs> was quite overwhelming for me. But obviously, they they eat meat in a different way there, so they'll have like one tiny chicken for like twelve people, and everyone gets a tiny bit of it, and then the rest is kind of the beans and the rice. That everything's local, and I just really love that way of sort of eating. Um, you know, meat. It's like a really special thing, and obviously, I can't say no if someone's prepared this like special thing. And it was actually really nice, <laughs> but yeah, it was just, I really liked that way that all the food was so fresh and they'd grown it all that it was really cherished. Um, and I've definitely kind of taken that away and I'll kind of, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It was just really amazing. I think one of the things when we were traveling across that we picked up on was like how awful it would be to be a vegetarian coming to the country. Yeah, yeah it was quite <laughs> a challenge. Because I everything that- is bread and meat. Yeah, I had bread for breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, actually, a lot of it, I had a lot of sort of cheese and bread. That was quite good. Um, and then I realised if I delved in myself and served myself, I could almost sort of go round the bits of meat. And I was fine with that. That was fine. Um, but yeah, it was it was part of it, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, they eat a lot of meat there. And how did uh, people take, because I always found when I spoke of Iran and the sort of hospitality and the sort of amazing place that it is, I always find that when you speak to people or tell people, they are completely bemused by what you're saying. They can't comprehend it. And they, they're almost like, you're lying. Like, mm. Yeah. I mean, people here, especially they only hear one side of it, don't they? Um, what the news wants to tell us, I suppose. Um, And yeah, you can't ignore that kind of thing, but that's just one tiny, tiny part of a country. Um, And working in travel for so long, I know as well, you know, that that's that's not the real life for most people there. Um, And actually, you know, you do need to, in a way, support tourism in these countries because they have such negative press. And there's a lot of other countries that we kind of travel to as Brits that, do horrendous things as well, but yet we never hear about it. Um, I won't name any of the countries, but one is like the world's most popular honeymoon destination. Um, but people just hear them, these things, and then that's it. They never want to go. Um, but I guess Iran is really, really badly represented in our press for good reason, but also it's just one side of it. Um, so yeah, before I went, people were quite confused as to why I would go there because they just assume everyone's going to get arrested and you'll never come back. Um, which is not not how it is at all. Um, but yeah, it's it's a big, you know, I could go on forever about this kind of thing. And also supporting after COVID, you know, people are still so messed up in the tourism industry. It's like 
um, you need to go to these places and support those people who, you know, run the homestays and do the driving and do the guiding. Um, yeah, it's just another way to look at it, I suppose. But yeah, before I went, it was, yeah, people were quite bemused by my choices. <laughs> what happened on Radio 4 when you, they heard your story? Yeah, so I said what I was doing on Radio 4 and um, they didn't ask, they just asked me what the trip was. So I just said what the trip was. And then I got loads of emails and messages afterwards going, how dare you go on Radio 4 and not even talk about the safety aspects and ignore the, you know, what the government's doing to all these tourists who are there. And I just, oh God. Like, this is not helpful. <laughs> this is not helpful for anyone. Like, I've done my research. I know that it will be fine. Um, but yeah, you can't ignore these things. But also, there is a whole other side to it. Um, but yeah, so I had all things like that to deal with before I went, which is why as soon as the plane landed in Tehran, I was freaking out. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I couldn't have been more welcomed. Everyone was so happy to see us. So, yeah. I remember explaining to an American woman about this and saying just what an amazing place it was. And she was like, no, no, it's one of the most uh, dangerous places you can go in the world. And, I, and anyway, this conversation sort of went on with me trying to explain, no, I've actually been and there are. Yeah, I've actually I've, been there, so I might know. And then it sort of got to the point of like, and then someone next to her just goes, have you ever been to Iran? She's like, no, no, I wouldn't go. <laughs> and that's the, I actually felt, I just felt so safe there the entire time. My only wobble was at the airport when we arrived, but only because what people had been saying. I mean, maybe if I was a political journalist, I might not have felt the same, but you're not. You're just someone, you know, and that you're always welcome there. You know, I felt so safe um, and welcome the entire time. So it is a really, really amazing, fascinating place. Um, full of contrasts, I'd say. <laughs> Your ups and downs. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it is funny with that because as you say, like when I arrived, it was very much the same. It was always based on external influences gave it, giving me that fear rather than the actual yeah. place itself. Yeah, that's what happened to me, definitely. Um, but people, you know, if you watch the news here, you, you, you would think that um, it's not necessarily people's fault, but yeah, it's, um, it is interesting when you go and do something yourself and you're like, I think I put on my Instagram, I actually took down all the articles I'd ever written and lots of my press because you have to submit your social media when you apply for your visas. So I was really freaked out. And then yesterday I was putting it all back up, just thinking, God, this was so unnecessary. <laughs> what a waste of time. Nobody cares. <laughs> you know? So it's Yeah. Funny. Well, what an absolutely incredible story. And I suppose um, last time we spoke, the idea was to do five and you're probably moving on hopefully this year or next onto the next incredible female adventurer of the past? Yeah. I mean, I've got so many I want to do. I, one of the big ones I'd like to do is a pirate queen from Ireland and get a, a group of women to row with me in an old gully boat from West Ireland um, to Greenwich, which is definitely possible, but it's going to take a lot of organisation. But she was this really formidable clan leader in Ireland who um, is kind of from the 1500s. So mainly I just want to dress as a 1500s pirate, but she was called Grace O'Malley. And then there's also a woman called Zora Neale Hurston, who's more known now as an author, but she actually did a lot of travelling through the Caribbean um, in sort of the early 1900s, um, kind of searching for the secrets of voodoo. And she just writes about it so beautifully and amazingly. So I'd love to do that. 
Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's lots going on, um, loads that I could possibly do. So yeah, lots to organize. Well, it's an absolutely incredible story. Like the last episode that we had, um, I always ask five questions at the end, same questions to each guest each week. So the first one is what does it mean to have purpose? Yeah, that's a tough one. Cause I, I feel like I constantly search for purpose. I'm never sort of happy. You know, I was never happy with a job in an office. I never really felt like, what am I doing? What am I doing? But I actually feel like this project has given me a bit of purpose now. Um, but yeah, it's hard because it's a weird question because actually if you don't have purpose and you don't know what you're doing with your life, which is what I had for a really long time, it's really stressful. Um, so when you do finally have it, it's quite an overwhelming thing. Um, so for me, it's been a very confusing thing trying to find purpose in life. Um, but yeah, I think maybe I found it now and it is quite a relief, I suppose. Um, I don't know if that's a very good answer, but you know, you're like, what is my purpose? Like, what am I doing? What is the point in this? And actually this trip to Iran, I really delved into why I'm doing this project, what it is that I'm getting out of it, which I, I realize is almost like a sort of therapy for me. Um, I, did, I didn't actually mention this, but yeah, I had really bad panic attacks, like all through my twenties, um, to the point where it really affected my life. Like I'm still on medication for it now. And I actually find that <clears throat> this project is like therapy for me. And then maybe now this is my purpose because it's helping me, but hopefully I can help others as well by kind of sharing that story. Um, so yeah, I think it's really important to have purpose, but also not to stress out like I used to, if you don't think you've found it yet, because you know, it might take a while. Um, I don't know if that was a good answer or not, but there you go. No, it was I like, uh, because as you say, you spoke last time about that and I was sort of going to ask whether, your anxiety has alleviated drastically by fulfilling this sort of adventure, whether adventure is almost curing the anxiety. Yeah, people always ask me that. And I'm not sure. I, I think it's like a combination of lots of things. Um, it's kind of getting a bit more confident, generally feeling better, because the problem I had was that it was completely out of my control. So I would start getting really shaky, really dizzy, like physical symptoms that I just couldn't control. And I think it's actually, because I've had it for like 10 years now, um, sort of going on like medication has really helped me um, get back to kind of where I was. But And without that, I wouldn't have been able to really do these trips. But also these trips and putting myself in these situations. At first, I didn't think it was doing anything because I'd come back and I'd be really sort of overwhelmed and constantly shaking, constantly in sort of panic mode. But over the years, because I've kind of been doing this for about three and a half years now, um, it's definitely, I can see I've got more confident. I can see that I actually love going and doing these things now as before it would terrify me. Um, so I think it's kind of a combination of everything. Um, but yeah, and now when I I do think these have made me kind of grow as a person. Um, so yeah, I think it has, I think the adventure has helped. So yeah, so that's why it's kind of like a therapy, I suppose, putting myself through these things um, just to see what I can do, I suppose. Yeah, I always think these sort of adventures give oneself, you know, confidence in so many other aspects of life. And it was quite interesting. I was just intrigued to sort of see whether mm. doing these adventures 
pushing yourself into these incredibly uncomfortable situations of busted shoes, running, walking over mm-hmm. the uh, Iranian mountains would have maybe alleviated it slightly. Yeah. And I think it has definitely, but it's taken time. Like I thought after the first trip, it would happen immediately. I thought if I can do this, I'll be cured. I'll never be nervous or shy or have a panic attack ever again. And obviously that's not how it works. Um, <laughs> but definitely over time, it really has. Um, and yeah, so I think it's, that's, yeah, that's kind of the purpose there. And it's also kind of shouting about these women and kind of saying to other people, you know, if they could do that then, and I can do it now in the old clothes, like the way I am, like you can have any little adventure that you want. You know, it doesn't have, I always say you don't have to like walk through the Himalayas with a chair on your back to have an adventure. It's just, I'm just kind of showing that, you know, you can do these things. So yeah. So hopefully other people will get something out of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what about your favorite quote? Has that changed since last time? Oh, what was it last time? Was it Alexandra David Neal, I think? It could well have been. I vowed to show what the will of a woman can do. I think that was it. I've got another one, actually, that Alexandra, I've actually got it on my wall, and it's, um, who knows the flower best? Um, Is it the one who reads about it in a book or who finds it wild on the mountainside? And I really love that one because it reminds me a bit of Iran as well. Like, you never actually know something truly until you do it and you see it for yourself. And that's what I really got with this trip. I kept thinking of that quote because like we were talking about, you know, people who've never been, they don't know. Um, so they can't really comment. Um, so yeah, I feel like I know it now properly. <laughs> uh, what about your favorite travel book and why? Oh, well, I've got lots now. <laughs> um, so obviously the first book I read, My Journey to Laza, Valley of the Assassins. Um, but yeah, but you know what? There is one that is totally unrelated. Um, have you ever heard of Gerald Durrell? No. He's, he's got a book called My Family and Other Animals. And actually, this was the book when I was really young that kind of got me into nature and the outdoors. Um, so that's kind of on the side because obviously I've got loads of travel books by all these women that they wrote back in the day. Um, but yeah, My Family and Other Animals is a really amazing book um, by Gerald Durrell. He's a zoologist. I think he's got a zoo in Jersey still, um, but he's died, but I think the zoo's still going. Amazing. Um, really funny book. And uh, why are these adventures important to you? Oh, yeah. Well, I think we've sort of covered that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's just, it's giving me a purpose and it's helping me understand my life. And yeah, I think showing like I said, showing that these women could do that back then, you know, when all they had is a photograph and they didn't have any phones or internet to know where they were going. Now, that's pretty brave. Um, and if I can do it today in that old stuff, um, then anyone can kind of do anything, I suppose. So I think that's the whole message of, of the, of the project, I suppose. Yeah. And in your lifetime, where's the most memorable place you've been and why? Ooh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I think this last trip is probably the most memorable for a lot of reasons. Although I was kind of so tired the whole time. I don't really know if I knew what was going on fully any of the days. Um, but I actually, I went to India when I was 16. So this is quite young going from Colchester to India. And I just remember being like completely, completely blown away by this world that I'd walked into. So that actually got me into travel. Um, 
And that's why I sort of ended up working. Well, I did a fine art degree, so I couldn't get a job, obviously, after that. So then I started working in travel. But it was because of that first trip um, to India. I was just, you know, like there's a whole nother world out there. Like it was such a different culture and amazing place. Um, So I think it was that trip that was probably my most memorable. Yeah, it's funny. Like when I sort of look back, those mountains in Iran will probably go down as we had a day where we hiked up for seven hours uh, from Dizan all the way to the top. Couldn't quite get to the top because avalanches were falling left, right and center from the top. Mm. And then we went down and it took like two minutes to get down after (laughs) seven hours or eight hours hiking. And I just remember thinking and like terrible conditions. It was a thunderstorm. But the whole sort of journey and the whole experience of climbing those mountains will always go down as probably one of the most amazing days of my life. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I mean, those mountains are just, I've never seen mountains like, it almost didn't look like Switzerland, but just like rolling green hills and then these like tall, crazy peaks. It, It was just so picturesque. It was, I just didn't expect it to look like that. But yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Skiing in Iran. And uh, what is next and how can people follow you in the future? So I'm actually, in a few weeks actually, I'm going to Scotland um, to recreate a journey by Jane Clark. And she set up the Women's Scottish Climbing Club. And um, they're these amazing photos of her in like long skirts and hats and these little high heel shoes from 1908. Um, where they're climbing um, and they basically set the club up because they weren't allowed in the men's one. So I'm actually going in a few weeks to kind of recreate a couple of their sort of climbs, um, hopefully with some women from the club. So that's coming up. And then, yeah, got uh, I've got lots of ideas in my head for later on in the year. So let's see. Um, but yeah, you can follow me at uh, Instagram at women with altitude. Um, yeah. And that's kind of where I post everything. So mainly on there. And I've got a website is womenwithaltitude.com amazing yeah. and this uh film uh valley of the assassins yes. when will that be yeah, out so yeah so that film we're hoping for the end of august um so then we're gonna maybe put it into film festivals and things like that um try and sell it to um a platform or something but yeah if you follow my accounts then you'll see when the film's out um but yeah that's super exciting um can't wait for that to come out well that sounds absolutely amazing and i'm sure people listening will follow through and um check it out amazing yeah thank you so much well thank you so much for coming on again and um yeah we'll have to have you on for your next adventure the next adventure. <laughs> always a pleasure <laughs> thank you amazing thank you so much yeah you too john thanks so much thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed the show and don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast if you're listening on Apple. A massive thank you to those who reviewed it. And I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day wherever you are in the world and happy adventures. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day.
To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.